0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at
1: ecorner.stanford.edu.
0: Shaw Selby works for Boeing, and I met him when he was taking a course called Global Entrepreneurial Marketing here at Stanford in 2009. He did a project for the Center for Ocean Solutions for a very big problem that has to do with illegal ocean fishing. That project led to a series of things that have gotten him a lot of recognition around the world, a really cool job that he does with National Geographic, and um, the ability to really have an impact. And so I'd like us all to welcome back to Stanford,
1: Shah Selby. Um, all right, thanks, Tom. Uh, you know, it's really great to be back at cam- on this campus. Um, college campus- campuses, specifically uh, Stanford, have like this great optimistic energy about them. So um, you'll know what I mean once you graduate and leave and come back. Um, so, yeah, uh, as Tom said, um, I'm Shaw Selby. I'm an explorer with National Geographic. So, um, more specifically, I'm an emerging explorer, which is this program that they have where They look and they find researchers or scientists or artists or even engineers that are doing something that they think could potentially have a big impact on the world in the future um, and they bring them into their uh, explorer family. So um, it's uh, it's pretty cool in that I I get the opportunity to call myself an explorer and, and other explorers are people that you all have heard of, people like Sylvia Earle and Jane Goodall and Bob Ballard and E.O. Wilson, really, really cool people. Um, and the other really great thing about it is it's, it's uh, fairly difficult to get in. You get nominated, you can't apply for it and they do this big vetting thing behind the scenes and um, give you a call one day and, and ask you to be part of the family, which is cool. But it also sometimes ends up people thinking that they're getting prank called <laughs> so they don't take it seriously. So. Um, so uh, I'm just going to kind of jump in a little bit and then I'll ta- tell a little bit about my story. But I cannot stress this enough, like we are living in an amazing, remarkable time um, with opportunity being literally everywhere, um, which, is, which is why I put up this picture because uh, the, the time di- difference between what the picture on the left and the picture on the right is actually not that long and, it, and it's accelerating. Um, you know, there, It wasn't too long ago where if you wanted to be a, an inventor, entrepreneur, it, it, you couldn't really do it without access to a factory or a ton of capital. But now you can basically design something and you know print out a prototype on a 3D printer and, and send that file off to get printed in a world-class factory all without leaving your couch. So it's, it's a pretty amazing time to be alive. And, and that's kind of a theme that's going to go through this, this talk of mine, is, is the fact that there's lots of opportunity out there and it, a lot of that opportunity kind of tends in, to be in places where you don't expect it to be. Um, so another a speaker that came to this lecture, I think last year or the year before, was the CEO of Box, uh, Aaron Levy, and he, had a, he sent out a tweet the other day that I thought was awesome. Um, he basically said that tech right now is, is basically an entrepreneur's time machine. So every company and industry created from the 1890s to the 1960s is being rebuilt digitally. Um, I would like to add to that to say that you know there's even uh, industries and ideas that we haven't previously thought that tech had a place in that, that, um, that are being rebuilt now. But there's a lot of opportunity now and, and um, it's really up to you to take it. Uh, and you know, Stanford is a wonderful place to do it. This is where my story of this started and I'll tell you a little bit about that as I go through. Um, but I also want to say you know, being in the Silicon Valley to try and think beyond the Silicon Valley bubble. There's lots of uh, issues in this world and lots of opportunities that need to be uh, fulfilled by bright minds like yourselves and, um, and sometimes that's going to happen outside of the uh, you know, San Francisco, San Jose little bubble. So, so my story, um, now uh, I went to school for engineering, specifically, specifically chemical engineering. But you know, I don't know, maybe it's like a lot of you guys, but I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I knew that I liked technology and I liked toys. Um, I was a little kid that was breaking everything, all the electronics of my parents because I try and take it apart. Um, and then when I went through high school, you know, I didn't have a lot of guidance on, on what was out there, what the possibilities were out there. And I got into cars and mechanics and you know, I liked chemistry, I liked physics, so I put those two things together and, and I went to school for chemical engineering. Um, so I, you know, after I went through my undergrad, I went out there and I started looking for the jobs out there. And, and what I could find for a chemical engineer um, really was, was only water treatment jobs. Um, And I I don't want to, I want to just preface that, I think water treatment is a wonderful career and it actually winds its way into my story, which is why I brought it up right now. Um, But uh, it wasn't something that I felt particularly inspired about at that time. Um, So you know, I started looking at grad school and during that time, I got an internship at Boeing. So that kind of brings me to the first point that I wanted to get across um, and that's get industry experience. If some of you guys are earlier in your career, I would say go out there and, and get an internship somewhere. Um, I know that being an intern isn't necessarily the most fun thing with a lot of companies. you know they usually give you the kind of the crappier things to do it's It's the thing where in a company if if there's something you don't want to work on, you just pass along to the intern, so they have to take care of it. Um, but I guarantee even if you're doing crappy things in that job, like the, the lessons that you'll learn from being in that kind of industrial setting inside of a company uh, will stay with you for the rest of your career. So it's definitely something that I, I think you, you, should, uh, you should push forward and, and do. And, and that's what I did when I got that internship at Boeing. I worked really hard and, and got hired into Boeing halfway through, um, through that internship um, opportunity. Um, and so I, I want to stress right now that, that there's ways at being entrepreneurial while you're still at a big company. You don't have to do the startup thing and be an entrepreneur. Um, you can be, have an entrepreneurial mindset when you're um, working for a large corporation like Boeing. Um, and, and the way that I want to explain that is just kind of through this chart. And if we just imagine for a second that when you look at a big company, especially one that was like born of maybe like an older industry, so something like aerospace, um, a big engineering company, a lot of times you get two main types of people there. Um, and let's call those people techies and jobbers. So um, jobbers are the, the people that come to, the, come, to job, come to their work every day, um, only nine to five and they just, they're coming to it for a paycheck. You know, they don't want to get anything outside of that. There's not any, anything necessarily wrong with that. I mean there's more to, to life than just work. Um, but you know, that was never me, I was never of that jobber type. Um, the other people are the techies. And those are the people you know, like the brilliant engineers, the specialists, the program managers, the types of people that you know, want to become very, very good at one thing. And they care very much about that, but they really don't care about anything else in the company. Um, now the interesting thing that I've learned about being in a company full of jobbers and techies is that you know, if you're entrepreneurial minded and you want to do things, um, basically both those groups of people will move, move aside and let you do it. Um, they won't stand in your way. And if you do it in the right way, and if you think about it in the you know uh, the correct method in terms of trying to change things in a company, um, you can get the resources of a giant uh, corporation behind you, which can be pretty beneficial. So the opportunities i 've had at Boeing in the last ten years have been amazing you know, i 've been kind of in charge of the engineering and design for uh, multiple spacecraft, um, the propulsion system specifically so uh, I'm, a, I'm a rocket scientist or propulsion systems engineer. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten to be part of a team that launched over 11 spacecrafts uh, and, and worked the mission control. Many of those times I was a lead, lead propulsion engineer for that. Uh, and, and when you get to do that, you get to do things like sit, cool things like sit in mission control and say, propulsions go for launch you know, during the c- countdown. So when I did that I could you know, check that off a bucket list that I didn't even know existed because who has that on a bucket list. Um, and, uh, and you know, I, I, I got to uh, learn quite a bit about, uh, about the different things that you can do in that industry. It's, it's been a really, really wonderful opportunity. Um, and then the other good thing that came out, out of being at a big company was that I had got my education all paid for. Um, Boeing had a phenomenal education program, and you know I went to um, graduate school at USCN here at Stanford, um, all without having to pay a dime. So that's a really amazing thing that, that, that big corporations allow you to do. Um, because they can kind of absorb those costs, so the one thing I would have to say though about working at a big company uh, and the, that you really have to keep track of and make sure it doesn 't happen to you is um, is get too comfortable uh, the, the The problem with working at a company like that it 's very easy, and you don't, a lot of times it's it 's easy to go into that comfortable lifestyle and you know enjoy happy hours and all that stuff and next thing you know all that entrepreneurial energy you had deep inside of you has kind of gone out, that fire has been put out. So so the one thing I would say is kind of hold on to that fire, don't let it go out. Um, so <coughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about engineering because this is something that I talk about a lot. Um, I feel like engineering ha- is in a little bit of a crisis of character, but thankfully now with tech being cooler, it's starting to change a little bit, but um, I am a Firm believer in engineering's ability to change the world, and so I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, A lot of times when people talk about engineers, like when you see how they're portrayed in the media or on on comics and stuff like that, they're always kind of the nerdy people, you know, the introverts, the the ones that um, that don't really talk to people very well. You know, they're they're the Dilbert. For those of you that are old enough in the audience to know who Dilbert is. but you know, I, I want to say engineers are much more than that. You know, Leonardo da Vinci was an engineer. Uh, I have Ada Lovelace there, you know, the daughter of Lord Byron. She was the first computer programmer. And the Wright Brothers technology turned us into a, a global society. You know? So I, I, engineers are the ones that create the society that we live in. They create this, the, the built society that, that you and I enjoy every single day. They give us the tools to solve humanity's greatest mysteries. You know? They save lives. Uh, there's lots of stuff that engineering does behind the scenes that they don't necessarily get credit for. And in my opinion, there's a lot more that you can do with engineering um, that we haven't quite tapped into, so including marketing it better. Um, so while I was really excited about the work I was doing at Boeing and you know I was technically challenged by that kind of stuff, um, I still tried to find something where I felt was maybe more aligned with kind of the Amazing nature of what an engineer is uh, to me. And during that search is where I found um, Engineers Without Borders. So I don't know if any of you guys have heard about Engineers Without Borders. I know um, Stanford has a similar organization called Engineers for a Sustainable World. Um, but basically, it's a humanitarian organization. And the purpose of Engineers Without Borders is to use engineering to help solve the problem that we have across a lot of this planet, which is. Um, people's lack of access to things like clean drinking water, sanitation and electricity. It's a really great organization. It was started in 2002 by uh, Bernard Amade, who is a professor at University of Colorado Boulder. And um, and when I found out about it, I wanted to learn more and, and kind of work towards it. So I, I also know uh, Scott Harrison came here and he talked for, about charity water, so you guys might know about a little bit of the statistics behind what the problem is. But there's over 2 billion people of this planet that don't have access to those fundamental human rights, things like clean drinking water and sanitation. It's a really important thing to work on. And so what EWB does, or Engineers Without Borders does, is they, they basically operate mostly in professional and student chapters and, and the organizations team up with the community for a number of years. And, and you'll go over to the community first for an assessment trip and you'll see like what kind of problems they're really facing, like, you know, Maybe their drinking water problem is tied to something else more serious and it's something that an engineer can come back and look at. Um, then you'll come back and you'll do, uh, you'll do some design and some analysis with the rest of the team stateside, state uh, go through a design review and have a PE or a professional engineer uh, sign off on it and then you'll go back over into the community and you'll actually build uh, what it was that you, um, that you ended up designing. So. Um, I've had the opportunity with Engineers Without Borders to work on projects in um, Mali, Malawi, Tanzania, India, Thailand and Mexico. So it's been a really cool opportunity uh, and, and quite a bit of fun. So that brings me to the second lesson that I wanted to talk about while I was here today and that was to uh, to volunteer for something. Um, a lot of times people, don't volunteer because they think that it's going to take a lot of effort. But I, I, I want to stress that like, if you put yourself out there and you find a cause, it doesn't matter what the cause is. There's, there's so many issues out there that need our help. So if it's something that speaks to you and doesn't speak to another person, then still go through, go through with it. But um, I, I really want to stress that the, the, the feeling that you get, the impact that you get out of working on something without expecting something in return, um, it, it has profound effect on the person that you are and the things that you end up doing with your life. And if you want to look at this in an entrepreneurial sort of way, if, if you want to end up working on, an, on this problem or working in an industry associated to the, that problem, through volunteering is you could really start to understand the problem more deeply uh, and, and gain credibility in, in talking about that. So you know, I, I volunteered for in- Engineers Without Borders for a number of years, um, didn't really have any expectations other than I wanted to really do some good work, and I wanted to try and help some people. I wanted to solve that problem that I said about the two billion people who lack access to, to those fundamental human rights. Um, and so basically I went into it and I just I worked hard on that. And I ended up, you know, rising up through some of the ranks in the LA professional chapter and I did stuff in the regional chapter. Um, And it it was a lot of years uh, where I was trying to convince a lot of the other engineers at Boeing to come and join me. And a lot of people didn't want to do it because they were afraid that I was going to take up too much of their time. But The great thing about volunteering is that it only takes up as much of the time as you want to to give it. So after years of talking to everyone about it and telling everyone at Boeing to join Engineers Without Borders, um, I actually ended up uh, getting a little bit of recognition for it. And so uh, Boeing uh, named me their Volunteer of the Year, their exceptional Volunteer of the Year, which is out of 170,000 employees, it's the person who wins that award, um, and uh, and I got to fly to Chicago and meet with the executives out there and and have lunch with the Los Angeles mayor and lots of random things like that. But but the the reason why I wanted to bring this up was because you know in the whole mindset of using a kind of entrepreneurial thinking um, in a big company, I used that opportunity to talk to Boeing, talk to the management at Boeing, and kind of convince them that they need. But the, the, the things that Engineers Without Borders wants to do and the things that Boeing wants are kind of one and the same and they should kind of look at that a little bit more deeply. Um, and they did. I mean uh, Boeing ended up getting behind Engineers Without Borders in a big way after that. Uh, they sent their entire executive council to uh, management training, which was important because they, EWB grew fast. They started in 2002 and um, in nine years, they, they started from one chapter, one professor, in University of Colorado Boulder, and in nine years they had 12,000 volunteers as a part of their thing, and they couldn't quite keep up. They also added, you know, funded some board positions on on the thing, and they and they gave away 1.1 million dollars in grants to projects. So, both EWB and all the communities that EWB supported were better off as a result of that. Um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit specifically about one trip that I took, and this is an implementation trip to. Um, southern Tanzania. So the village we were working in was uh, Ipalamwa. You see it up there in the corner. It's about eight hours um, from Dar es Salaam. Eight very rough hours. It's not a not an easy trip. Um, but we were asked to come and talk to the community and help them with their problem, which was water. Um, so this community is is in the southern highlands, as I said. It's a it's a very hilly terrain. It's very different than. Um, any of you guys thinking about the Serengeti when you think about Tanzania, it's a completely different environment down there, which also means that it's a, it's a difficult environment for dealing with the transport of water. Um, we were asked specifically to come to the school and help uh, with the water situation at the school. So the school is at the highest point in the village, which basically meant that all the students would have to spend a couple hours in the beginning of their days every day hiking down to the catchment, filling up those five-gallon buckets and bringing them up to the school so they can have enough water to drink and cook with for the entire day. This was time that the kids should have been spending in class, but they're really just spending it moving water. Um, So we designed a, a, a rainwater catchment and filtration system. Luckily the area that we were working in had ample rain and we can size this thing big enough that it's basically will cover a lot of the school year. So that was our plan to go in and build that thing. Now, uh, we ended up going to the city of Oringa which is nearby, it's kind of the closest construction town in the area to try and gather some of the supplies. And in doing that we found that a lot of the things that you know, our stateside team assumed that would, we would find fairly easily in Tanzania uh, were not found at all. And so we had to do a lot of kind of re-engineering and recalculating on the fly which was both exciting and frustrating at the exact same time. Um, And the roads going back uh, were very small and kind of curvy. And so this is just a quick snapshot of one of them. But when we took that truck back, it had a lot of difficulties getting around these roads. Uh, We had to slow down and and take the turns really really slowly. And one of those turns when we were taking it, we ended up finding a similar truck facing the other way that was broken down on the inside of the turn, Um, which would not have normally been a big problem. But the, the issue was that, uh, the other side was a big steep drop-off and so we had to figure out a way to get the truck around the broken down truck without falling into the steep drop-off. And the, uh, the method that we ended up using was getting all, all the guys that we had to hang on the side of the truck that's on the inside so that as we slowly went around the truck didn't slide off the side of the cliff. So um, that picture of 13 guys hanging on the inside of a truck to keep it from falling off a cliff is something that I won't forget um, for a very long time Uh, and also the gearbox kept on slipping so as we were going up these steep inclines, we'd have to repeatedly throw that log underneath the rear tires. It it was a really big long process but finally we ended up getting to the school and unpacking all the materials and started on what ended up being a very frustrating build. So things didn't end up getting any better at this point. None of the tolerances were correct, everything didn't go together the way that we wanted to, the sand for the filter was Way dirtier than we ever expected it to be, and um, and so it, it started to get hard. Right, we were a bunch of we were four engineers and a bunch of villagers that were working together on this thing, and tensions were were getting high. And uh, this was mostly because we didn't know if we can finish the build in the time uh, that we allotted for it. Um, even down to the nails that we would use, we would try and bang the nails into the wood, and the nail would just bend in half and shoot off in the <laughs> distance. And so. Um, we started kind of getting a lot of um, we were getting, there was a high tension in the, in the air about this kind of build. Um, but I do remember one day where we ended up uh, walking out from the schoolyard and I looked over and you kind of saw, we saw everything sitting up there finally put together. I mean they, they had, while I was inside working, they had put the tanks up on those stands and that was the day where it kind of felt like, okay, we're going to finish this thing. Um, everyone had this like whole sense of relief that washed over them and it was it was a very uh, very happy day. Well, it turns out that that same day ended up being my um, my birthday. It, was, it fell on my birthday, so we were there in Tanzania. So uh, so we went back to the house and we ate the same bland meal that we ate for lunch and dinner every day. But I remember that meal tasting, you know, especially satisfying because where we were in the building, and and, um, and that we would actually finish this and it would work. So um, while we were eating dinner, I heard a bunch of commotion outside and. Know, the other engineers told me to go check it out and I walked out back to find the entire village um, in, our, in the backyard um, ready to celebrate my birthday, which is pretty cool. Um, the, they don't, birthdays aren't a big thing for this village, so um, the other engineers kind of organized this whole thing. But um, we ended up spending the entire night you know, uh, dancing to, uh, to drums and drinking corn beer under the most amazing view of the Milky Way I've ever seen. So that's a birthday that it's going to be tough to top, um, even if I don't ever want to drink corn beer ever again. <laughs> it was gross, really bad. Um, so you know, we finished the project in time. Uh, the the kids were happy. The principal at the school was was so proud of the work that we did that he had a sign a little guest book in his house and he gifted us one of his prized chickens to take with us. Um, and and the system still works to this day. So. Uh, you know, I, I just I want to stress that if it wasn't for volunteering, I would have never had an experience like that. You know I would have never met people like that. So um, I say to you, you know, go put yourself out there and, and see what's out there. OK, so but it wasn't until I came here, until I was at Stanford that I kind of found what I consider my, my true calling. Uh, so, as Tom talked to a little bit, uh, you know, while I was here. I was taking grad courses in Management Science and Engineering and I, I ended up taking Tom's uh, Global Entrepreneurial Marketing course. So I don't know if any of you guys in here have, have taken that course yet, but a, a portion of that is you work on a project with a, a company that comes into the class and you kind of apply entrepreneurial thinking to it and uh, as a result of that, you, can, uh, you end up, that, that ends up being part of your grade. And so when I took that class, there was, uh, there was one nonprofit in the entire class. And it was uh, the Center for Ocean Solutions, which is a Stan- Stanford based organization. Um, and, and the problem they wanted us to look at was the problem of illegal fishing. So, you know, like many of you, I, I probably didn't know very much about illegal fishing. I knew that there was probably some shady fishermen out there and that it was probably contributing to the, pro- the problem of overfishing in the world. But I didn't realize, like, what a big problem it actually was. I mean, we, it's a, it 's a twenty three billion dollar industry illegal fishing is um, you know since the 1950s when we kind of invented this modern way of fishing, ninety percent of the big fish in the world have been dis- have disappeared you know that's tuna and shark and everything everyone likes to eat. Um, you know our current global fishing fleets are two and a half times what our, our planet can sustainably handle uh, and, and and we're just seeing things getting worse we're seeing you know fish talks. Uh, crashing left and right. And the worst part about this is uh, that most of it targets developing nations which kind of robs the poorest people of the planet of their food and their income. Um, and, and a lot of times they'll even take those people and they'll put them on the boats as as, as fishers and uh, a lot of these vessels act essentially as slave ships. They don't let the people off the boats, they're out at sea for a long time, they just dump their catch at sea on, on bigger container vessels. Uh, and barely pay these people anything. So it's actually a, a human rights issue as well. And uh, two billion people on this planet rely on our oceans for their, for their primary source of food and income, the primary source of protein. So it's a, it's a big thing. Uh, and, and lastly, I, I know you guys have probably heard of the piracy problem that we have in Somalia. Well, you know, that piracy problem really came from this. The, the, the guys who are now pirates, the Somalians who are now pirates, were originally fishermen and uh, basically illegal fishing off the coast of Somalia was rampant. There was lots of uh, Italian vessels that were fishing quite aggressively out there and they were dumping pollution into the waters and it basically turned all that water over there into a wasteland. And so you you have boats and guns and no government, and so what do you do? You become a pirate and that's kind of where that that whole thing happened. It's really sad. Um, So me and two other individuals, wanted to work with Center for Ocean Solutions on this problem. And we thought that maybe the right answer to the problem was in uh, technology. So basically the way that we protect um, our coasts now is the same way we've protected them for you know, centuries. Uh, es- essentially most of the time what we do is we'll get in a boat and we'll just shoot out there until we randomly find someone doing something they shouldn't be doing and then they get in trouble for it, which is crazy. Um, and so we thought that there's much better ways to do this. There's, there's uh, a, a lot of opportunity in this, you know. And so we ended up uh, working on the project, and, uh, and I was so inspired by that work that I asked the Center for Ocean Solutions if I can continue on as an independent researcher for a number of quarters. And I did that for, for three more quarters. And then after that, I just started working, um, working on it for. My career, so that's kind of where conservation technologies—it's what I call it now—that's where conservation technology came from. That's where my passion for that came from. Um, and so that brings me to the next lesson that I wanted to share, and that's opportunity exists everywhere. Um, and you know, I, I wanted to stress this because you know when I first started this, if you would have came to me ten years ago and told told me, you know, at Shaw Selby, I believe that you are going to be working on helping wildlife populations in the world. I would probably say to you that I don't have the skills to do that you know? and then I would never have found out 10 years later that I, I actually precisely have some of the skills that can help solving some of those problems. So this is an area where I didn't know opportunity exists and it wasn't until I said, you know what, I'm going to take this class and I'm going to do this illegal fishing project that I found that there was this huge potential there. So. That could be in all the, each and every one of your lives. So it, I want you to all look back at your careers and what you want to end up doing with your, with your life and, and think hard and long about opportunity and where that exists. You know? Because so often the limits that we put on opportunity are the ones that you know we put on ourselves or society tells us that it's there. And it takes a little while until you stand up and say it enough times that people say, oh yeah, you're, you're right, there is a lot of opportunity there. So uh, a story about that is, uh, you know there there was a time where I was sitting in this meeting, and it was full of kind of some marine biologists and environmental lawyers and they 're all talking about the big problems that our oceans are facing and It was in that meeting where I started seeing the things that they were saying and, and I, I started thinking, you know that seems like there's an engineering solution there, or you know if they if they only look at what they did in the shipping industry, that could probably help that problem or here 's this little technology that we, we can fill this gap and it was there where I kind of you know, I was aware that opportunity can exist anywhere. And you know, it's from then that I've kind of moved on through that. So I got to go with Stanford to Palau and we presented an entrepreneurship seminar there, a conference there. And I gave a, a technology plan to the president of Palau, which was pretty cool. Um, I, I work with the Waite Institute on a, on a project that they're doing in Barbuda and they're expanding it beyond just Barbuda, but it's kind of a comprehensive mapping of the science and legislation and, and usage of the ocean around the island. So it's a really neat thing to, to be able to create all of that stuff from scratch. Um, I work with um, the XPRIZE to help them map out what the next three grand ocean challenges will end up being. Uh, and, uh, and it's this conservation technology work that ended up in me being named one of the National Geographic Emerging Explorers. So this problem is really, really important. And the reason why is because um, it's, it's kind of out of control nowadays. So in the last 40 years, we've lost over 50% of the wildlife on this planet in the last 40 years. Um, and it's happening so fast that it's having a lot of people start to call it the sixth uh, extinction. So if you don't know much about the history of you know, life on this planet, we've kind of gone through five major extinctions, you know, ice age and things like that. Um, but those other five extinctions were caused by asteroids or natural phenomenon and the sixth one is caused by all of us in this room. So um, the illegal wildlife trade is the fourth most Lucrative trade on the planet after (coughs) drugs, human trafficking, and arms, weapons. Um, 35,000 to 50,000 elephants are poached annually just for their ivory. So, in the last hour, uh, you know, we've been up for a half an hour, but in the last hour, four of them have have died. Um, Four rhinos are poached uh, every day, and, you know, these are small populations. There's five northern white rhino remaining, and there's 35 Javan rhino remaining. And there's more uh, tigers in backyard of people in the U.S. than there are in the wild. So, um, to kind of like work on this, I, I have started Conservify, which is like an organization that's focused on um, bringing some of these ideas to fruit. So it's kind of like an idea lab. It's a, a nonprofit that works on kind of focusing um, how whatever you need to do to develop and test and, and uh, put these out in the world. A lot of that stuff is focused around uh, open source approaches because I find it's easier to replicate and, and adapt as, as needed. Uh, one of the projects of that is SOAR Ocean, which is a, a grant or a project that's funded by National Geographic and, and Lindblad Expeditions to use uh, you know, these low cost drones that you guys always hear about all over the news for ocean conservation causes. Uh, we've done a bunch of expeditions off the coast and um, I'm going to do one, I'm going to show a video of one of the expeditions right now. I'm Shaw Selby. I'm an engineer, an ocean conservation technologist, and an emerging explorer with the National Geographic Society. This weekend we're in San Simeon on the beautiful coastline of California. We're here because I'm principal investigator for a a program called SOAR Ocean, which is a a grant that's funded by National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions to use low-cost UAV or drone technology to monitor and protect our oceans. The value in using uh, UAV technology or drone technology for ocean purposes is there's, there's a lot of reasons why we need to get an aerial vantage point in order to collect more data about our ocean and um, something that I, I specifically focus on is how to stop things like illegal fishing and, and poaching of our ocean wildlife. It's often way too expensive to fly a manned aircraft and the resources are limited. Uh, a lot of times this role falls to the military, but I believe that communities can be empowered to collect the, the necessary data and, and help the authorities to better protect these delicate species that we have on our coast.
0: Hi, my name is Patrick Meyer. I'm a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, which is how I know Sean, who is also a fellow explorer we met last year, and we immediately hit it off. We've both got a passion for civilian UAVs, or non-lethal drones, except I come to this space from uh, the humanitarian side of things. I work in humanitarian innovation through technology, and I'm here this weekend to really learn as much as I can hands-on from from Sean and his team of experts in this uh, civilian UAV space, and then learn what it means to deploy UAVs in settings like the one we're at here, which is somewhat remote and isolated, you don't have uh, all the tools and uh, electricity and everything else you might need which is very similar just to a humanitarian setting. How do, we, how do we still deploy these UAVs in a timely way? And it really behooves us to go beyond our own field and to talk and interact with experts in other fields like environmental conservation, ocean protection, and, and learn how they're using new technologies uh, like UAVs. So I'm very excited about, about the future of this uh, innovation technology in the humanitarian settings. I think it, it will literally help us save lives and alleviate suffering where people need it
1: the most. So there's going to be a, a number of different expeditions. This is this is the first of um, at least three uh, with with the ultimate goal of ending up in the Channel Islands uh, to, to try and show the power of using these low-cost versions of drones in, in long-endurance flights of, uh, of patrolling um, our oceans. So a lot of uh, the information behind that is coming out pretty shortly, so you can follow it. Um, on Twitter if you want to find out more information. But um, another project or that we worked on was uh, how you can use kind of crowdsourcing to, uh to help protect the coast. So you guys have heard of like citizen science, and so this is like citizen protection. So create the tools and, and the ways that, that people can um, work together to create like the neighborhood watch for the seas. Um, this program has been folded into something else that we're working on now that will be coming out shortly. Um, And then the final thing that I work on is a lot of different types of sensors and other kind of open devices that allow us to understand more about the environment and and help us protect the environment. So I'm going to show a quick video about one of those projects and then tell you some stories about that.
0: the birthplace of, of our human existence. It's the sanctuary of the sand bushmen who were to hundred thousand years ago populate our planet and results in all of us. And when you come out here, you get to be part of the cycle of life, the cycle of death.
1: Delta is our mother, mother of the BaYei tribe. We depend in the Okavango Delta. All the food
0: we have, we get it from the Delta. The source of the Okavango River is on the Bay Plateau near the Golden Highlands. This river then flows 1,000 miles down through Namibia into northern Botswana, where it finds itself in a Delta of the Kalahari Desert. 27 years of war ended in 2002. The development in Angola since then has been erupted. We're looking at the potential for dams, for agricultural developments, for pumping schemes. All of these things are going to change the flood dynamic in the sensitive wetland ecosystem. If the water disappeared, our truck, they won't survive anymore. Animals as well, they won't survive because they're water dependent. The urgency is now. We are taking dugout canoes from Makoro, with our team, down the length of the Okubango River. The idea of it seems like madness. Never forget where you are. You to make sure that you keep your eyes open that you know where they are or you listen very well to hear. Look one in Coming around, coming around. We've been living out here.
1: Used to sounds of hippos, like you can hear behind me right now. Used to sounds of elephants in the distance, trumpeting about their who knows what, and we've been part of it in an incredible way. This place is really special. I want to work to make this place stay the way it is, to help this place any way I can.
0: We can bring that place back. We can turn it again into the elephant factory for Africa. In the famous dictum of Henry David Thoreau, in wildness is the preservation of humankind. It is the very pulse of this planet. And when we lose these last wilderness areas, like the Ocavanga Delta, we lose the beating
1: heart of our planet. (coughs) I don't know how many of you guys know about the Okavango Delta. Uh, that's a kind of a good summary on it, but it's in Botswana and it's easily one of the most amazing places on this planet. Um, there's lots of concern for the development that's happening in Angola. There's, um, if you go to the capital of Angola, it's actually uh, more expensive than many European cities that you go to because of the amount of development and amount of people who are in, coming to that city. Um, but that's the, this is the Akavango Wilderness Project. And so the project lead was uh, Steve Boys, the person that you saw talking. He's a um, TED fellow and biologist. He does this multi year expedition in the Akavango to uh, do surveys of birds and, and other ma- mammals. The other guy you heard talking was uh, Greg Trenich, and he was a National Geographic Adventure of the Year. He runs an organization that does. Um, put scientists in, in touch with adventurers that are going to go climb Everest and other places to get really hard to hard to find data. And Jer Thorpe is um, kind of the, the data artist, he's a, a brilliant data artist that runs an organization that's rethinking how we're um, consuming information and, and everything. And I'm the project technologist, so I help to kind of figure out what technologies we can use to monitor the delta and make sure that that, that doesn't actually happen. Um, so, we, in doing this, we kind of wanted to change the way that um, scientific expeditions are usually run. In the past, scientists would go out on an expedition and they would um, gather a bunch of data and they'd kind of sit on it and wait on it to publish it and gain all these accolades. Uh, when we went on this expedition and when we go on future expeditions, we want to do exactly the opposite. We kind of wanted to open it up for the world. So we, we put all the water quality readings, the sensor readings, Um, The wildlife sightings, biometrics, and all this other data um, out there for use for free on the website um, and and through the API so people can take it and do uh, interesting things with it. We were looking to kind of open source the expedition and we were hoping that um, we can, you know, that the accolades can come from the amazing things that uh, citizen scientists or artists or researchers or students or anybody wants to do with it. So as I said, I'm I'm building kind of these sensors, uh, and they're and they're based off of kind of open source microprocessor platforms, and they send the data real time to uh, to the website. Uh, For this last one, we put just a handful of sensors, kind of prototype versions, up in different parts. Um, But this next year's expedition, uh, I'm deploying an entire mesh network across the delta to to gather the information that we need. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the expedition itself because those 17 days were the greatest adventure I've ever been on in my entire life. I'm not sure if you got it from the, uh, from the video itself, but this was not an easy trek. This was um, pretty crazy. We were, we were uh, in boats, in little canoes like that um, surrounded by hippos and lions and, and elephants and, and crocodiles. Um, without a gun or anything like that, and so we had to be pretty careful. And not only that, but we had to uh, pull the boats over water for a number of days—three uh, days this last expedition. It could be as much as nine days. Um, and there's only a handful of people in the world that know how to get to this really pristine area um, on land or or on water. Uh, and, and they were our guides for this expedition. Um, you know, during while we were dragging that uh, the the boats over water. We were walking through things like this and there was one moment where I lifted my feet out of the water and I had nine leeches on my legs at once, which is pretty interesting. Five on one leg and four on the other. Um, but we got, we got through all these reeds and all this papyrus and we got to the pretty much the most pristine area I've ever known in my, I've never seen in my entire life. It was, it was so much wildlife there, it felt like you were in the middle of a Disney movie. Um, but you could see right here, this is the, just the front of a huge herd of elephant. There was around 50 elephant there but also in that picture we have a crocodile, hippos, and lechway and birds, and this was everywhere we looked. And just right after this picture, you see a piece of it in, in the video, but um, the elephants and the hippos, uh, you know, basically gone into a, a, an attack on each other, which was pretty amazing just to see right in front of you. It was like you're watching a Planet Earth documentary, but it was literally in front of you. Um, and so I don't know how much, how much you guys know about hippos, but they kill more people in Africa than anything, any other animal out there. They are horrible, they're scary <laughs> um, So, and we were charged by a number of them. Uh, the, the thing that hippos do is, uh, they, there was sounds of it in the video, but basically they, start, they sit at you and look at you like this and they grunt and they make this noise that's like, oh, 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 oh. I mean it's kind of a grunt and it's kind of like an old man laughing if you, <laughs> if you put both those together and then when they want to charge you, they drop to the bottom of the water, uh, like onto the, the bottom of the, the channel and they run. So you see the head, you hear the grunting, and then you see a wake moving towards you. And you just have to kind of move as fast as you can possibly move. Um, but the experiences we had with the elephants were amazing too. This picture was taken, we were setting up camp one day and um, our expedition photographer, James Kidd, came over and he told me, oh, there's uh, you know, three adults and a baby right over there on the other side of the trees. And so I walked over to this tree that I thought was kind of along the path where they would walk. And I climbed up into the tree and I started taking pictures. And it, you know, slowly, one by one, each one of the elephants walked right past me. It was one of the most amazing experiences I ever had in my entire life. I felt like n- nothing else in the world existed except for me and these, these magnificent elephants. But the last one was a bull and uh, he looked over at me and did kind of this aggressive behavior that they sometimes do where they lift up their foot and they flap out their ears. And in that moment, I went from feeling the most amazing experience I've ever felt to being most scared I've ever been in my entire life. I've never felt more small than sitting on that tree and that thing uh, looking at me. But uh, it obviously kind of uh, thought I was not very interesting and and just walked away. So the final lesson that I want to bring to this class is, um, I want to say find your inspiration and that the world needs you. Um, I, I think that all you guys, can, can potentially find something that inspires you as much as kind of conservation and technology inspires me. Um, it's all out there for each and every one of you. You just got to start looking and try things. And um, so I basically plead you to, to go out there and, and put yourself out there and try and fail and uh, pick yourself back up and keep on working on it. The world actually needs your help. We, we need you. So um, instead of thinking of entrepreneurship and engineering and innovation in terms of maybe building a a better app that can filter things better than Instagram, I want you to think about the grand challenges that our planet are, is facing, and what you can do to kind of change those challenges, what you can do to, to start companies or start nonprofits that can really change the tide on where we 're going you know um, because, uh, because we need you to do it. Maybe by doing it, you can inspire the next generation of engineers and scientists that go off and, and change the world and Maybe we won't leave this planet off um, as badly as it seems like we're, we're starting to put it. So, thank you. Thank you. Questions? So, uh, there's an implicit rat race in the corporate world where almost every single bit of your energy is given into climbing this invisible ladder, and that's the reason I guess you weren't able to attract a lot of other engineers that are going to join in your efforts. How have you been able to manage to do so many amazing projects while working in the corporate world? Um, So the question was, um, there's kind of this rat race in the corporate world that basically uh, is the reason why a lot of engineers didn't want to volunteer alongside me. Um, and the question was how I was able to be able to do all this stuff while working in corporate uh, america and i I guess my only answer was was that I found something that I was passionate and inspired by and so i 'm not going to lie. I work very long nights and weekends on things, and sometimes it feels like i 'm doing two um, full time jobs but but i 'm in a position where I feel so inspired that sometimes it doesn 't matter and then you know, as, you, as you kind of work hard towards something, I mean, you see this in entrepreneurship, right? Like, entrepreneurs see this. If you're working hard towards an idea, you have times where you feel like it's the greatest idea in the world, and you have times where you feel like um, you're an idiot, you know? And so it kind of goes through these waves, and, and that, that's the same thing that happens when you're working on anything, you know, especially things like this. And you just got to kind of convince yourself to work through it. You know, there's work through the stressful times and keep on pushing and maybe eventually you can get there. Um, while doing all the project you showed us in Africa, uh, how much would you say did you learn during your studies and how much did you learn like during, during the job? So uh, the question was like in, in, in pertaining to the project in Africa, how much I learned um, when I was studying and how much I learned in my job? Uh, I learned it all on the job. I, you know, I. So I'm an engineer, and I know engineering principles, and I've worked in industry as an engineer, and I understand like kind of how to go about those problems. And you know, I've I've learned a lot of that stuff from school. My my master's degree was in systems engineering, so I've I know how to look at things from a systems perspective, and you know, boil down the requirements and everything like that. So I use that in this stuff, but the technology itself. I mean, most of it I've kind of just learned from working with people or the internet. (laughs) I mean, you know, we're that's part of the the whole. We're living in this amazing time, right? We have the opportunity to learn these things. And if you hang out around like maker spaces or anything like that, most of the people that are building interesting things uh, in a lot of the maker spaces are not engineers. You know, they're just random people who have figured out how to build something and they're buying hardware and doing it. So. Technology that you mentioned, or you saw, showed us in that one video, is there a plan? How do you plan to spread that? What's the? Is there a model for selling that to entities? How? What do you? How do you see that growing and scaling in a productive so, way? Uh, so, so the part that was already funded was to put together uh, all the information around it. What the limitations are, like uh, operations, kind of. Uh, lessons learned everything and, and, and through the expeditions, and all that stuff 's going to go on the soar ocean website so it 's effectively going to be open for anybody who wants to use it and, and do anything with it. Um, now, what soar ocean 's going to do beyond that is probably work on cre- creating some off the shelf drones for specific uses. Um, that they can do. I don't want to build my own drone. I, there's a billion companies doing that nowadays. But configuring it in the correct way and and deploying it is something that um, <laughs> there's a ton of interest in. So, um, so do you um, plan on starting your own nonprofit, or would you rather keep this as a voluntary experience? Yeah, that's what uh, Conservify is going to be. It's a nonprofit. So, um, uh, it's going to eventually kind of. There's some things in work to, to move into doing that in a bigger scale. So. Sure, they not the oh, the the question was, am I going to start this as a nonprofit or just do do it on the volunteering side? And I and I said that it is it is a nonprofit and it's moving towards the kind of much bigger operation. So that's the plan for 2015.
0: More suggestions about stopping this illegal fishing problem across the planet
1: yeah um, so the question was more more suggestions about stopping the legal fishing problem um, so the number one thing I can tell you guys that you should do is um, is download the the seafood watch app from Monterey Bay Aquarium and don't eat the things that are red on it like that's the easiest thing that you can do it's It's super easy to do um, it there's a lot of information a lot of great books and, and documentaries that have been done on in it um, i've you know, me personally, I know so much about that kind of stuff because I've been working in it so long that I'm the guy that nobody ever invites to sushi. <laughs> um, but, but like, you know, you can do much less than that and still have a positive impact, right? And um, <clears throat> there's this great push for seafood traceability and understanding where it came from, catch to plate, basically. And um, through using things like Seafood Watch, you're you're reinforcing that, you know, and asking. I mean, you can ask restaurants where they got their fish. A lot of times, they don't know or they'll tell you something that they think you want to hear. But um, if enough people do that, then it can kind of be a bigger movement.
0: drone thing supposed to like happen like regularly,
1: like are people supposed to like do rounds to patrol? Yeah, well, so um, the question was about the drone thing and how it works operationally. Um, so, so yeah, you can patrol with like a fixed wing that's got a longer range on it. it obviously, it's going to be more near shore stuff right now while, while the endurances are lower. Um, and then quadcopters would be more for like technical type evidence gathering. So that's, that's the, the model as of right now.
0: What do you say is the ultimate impact or legacy you want to leave after your career is
1: done or your, your work is done? So the question was uh, what would I say like the, the ultimate legacy or impact that I want my career to have. Um, I, I The number one, that's super easy, I want um, engineers to start thinking about problems outside of what, uh, what school has told them are the only problems they can work on. Um, I want interdisciplinary thinking between engineering and the rest of the world. I, you know, I think that there's a great potential. There's a lot of people doing really stupid things now. That if you just had someone who had a different perspective come in and say, "Just check it out and look at how they're doing it," they might, you know, be able to save a lot of resources, change, you know, change the things that they're doing, and potentially, you know, change the world. You know? I mean, I I, I think that. Through doing that, through collaborating with each other, we can do quite a bit. So I'd love to inspire other engineers to do the same thing. That's what I would like to do. Oh, and stop all the wildlife crime if I could do that, but you know <laughs> it's a little, a little difficult. How was for for I'm sorry, I can't hear. How effective, was for initiative? How effective is the initiative for conservation? I mean, it's been, it's been huge. There's. Not, I mean there's tons of nonprofits that want to work on it. We have pilot projects that are working all over the place. There's the, when I first started talking about this stuff, um, nobody was talking about technology and conservation. There's very few people but um, they were looking at companies that already produced things and everything was overpriced and it didn't really uh, work very well. Now it's, I mean, you know, Google's looking at different ways that they can help and stuff. So I think, I think it's been huge over the last couple of years, the, the changes that we've seen. So we'll see, we'll see how things go in the future. You know, This stuff kind of takes a little while to kind of go through and, and make a difference.
0: Um, can you talk a little bit about your failures? Uh, it seems that things came to place almost all the time to you, but then you say when you fail, make sure to pick up yourself and move forward. So can you talk about your challenge? And-
1: yeah, um, so the, the, the thing was to talk about uh, my failures uh, a little bit. Because I think the way that maybe this sounded was that I haven't had a billion failures, which I've failed more than anything else. I've failed way, way, way more than I succeeded. I basically, every time I try something and it didn't work, I just kind of started again the next day to try over. So, um, based all, every single project you had there was just riddled with failure. <laughs> I just didn't let it affect myself, you know? So. I don't want to, I mean failure is a part of this whole thing. It's it's the way that you move forward. You can't, nobody ever creates anything without failing before. And if you do, you're very lucky and I'd like to meet you. Uh, But yeah. Okay. Are you guys building predictive models based on when you catch illegal activity on the seas and using that to target your patrolling efforts a little bit more? Okay, so the question was, um, are we looking at predictive models uh, to, to help target the, the patrols and the enforcement? And the answer is, yeah, that's part of uh, what's going into, when I mentioned the MPA Guardian went away and it's going into something bigger, that's basically what it is. Um, I'm also working with an individual that um, has done it for drone technology. So they've... They did it uh, to to try and help um, find where like rhino poachers would would be, um, so we can do similar things with illegal fishing. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, once you find illegal fishing, what do you do about it? <laughs> so the question is, once you find someone's like illegal fishing, what do you do about it? Um, that's a, that's a particularly loaded question. Uh, the the. The first step is finding it, which we're not doing right now. Um, so that's where my efforts are focused right currently. Um, if you can gather enough objective evidence of what's going on and kind of prove to people other than it just being uh, you know, an arbitrary fisherman saying he saw this happening, then you could start to change the legislation around it and start to put pressure on, on um, the governments to do more about it. Uh, There's already some pressure being done, but we're we're like way early in the process. You know, we we weren't documenting it well in the first place, and so a lot of the projects that I worked on were focused much more on on how you fix that problem first. Once you document it, um, then then like you know, how do you kind of make sure that that stuff sticks and enforcement gets strong enough to deter people from doing it and, and move on from there. So. So t- typically the way that it would happen is if you could prove someone's doing it then they would they would get arrested and their stuff would get confiscated they'd probably get fined or the boat would be destroyed it it depends the, the laws differ from country to country um but but uh there's some countries are starting to collaborate and work together on this sort of thing they have regional management organizations that are kind of addressing this sort of thing uh but Everything's different right now. The way every country does it is differently. If everyone did it like the U.S., it'd be fine. But the U.S. has spy satellites and all sorts of stuff all over the place that we see. And U.S. had just barely started to care um, very strongly about illegal fishing. Obama had uh, put out a proclamation about it this year, but um, before that, you know, they would basically be looking for uh, for like drug trafficking and things like that. And if they ended up finding someone doing some kind of a wildlife crime in the drug thing or human trafficking. Um, then they would, they would get them there. Um, but a lot of my efforts are trying to see how to standardize that across the countries, and especially if you can standardize it across the countries that don't have as much resources as like the US and Canada and UK and people like that, uh, countries like that, then, then you can raise the bar and, and change the way we do things. So Okay.
0: I think we're a wrap. All right,
1: thank you.